Well, good morning, everyone. It is an incredible pleasure to be with you. As Andrew said, this is our first time here in the UK, but it has been a long time coming. Um, my wife is named after the island itself, Brittany. And um, my surname, Putman, is, of course, a deviation on the, the traditional English name Putnam. And any Putnams in the house, by the way? Anyone? Not, not a one? <laughs> really? Ah, that, that went way different in my mind. So, <laughs> anywho, we're, we're having a wonderful time. We're really enjoying it. Uh, we're trying to experience everything that UK life uh, has to offer. Uh, courtesy of John Mumford, we have tried black pudding. Um, I don't know what's in it. I don't want to know what's in it. I followed the words of Paul. I ate what was set before me. Um, and so we're, we're, having a, we're having a wonderful time. I was uh, taking some time to journal this morning, and I was just saying, God, you know, what, what exactly are you doing here? I want to cooperate with you. I want to partner with what you're doing. And God said something really interesting to me that I, that I want to start with today. He said, you know, Putty, this, this week is a grace exchange program. And I thought, huh, what does that mean, God? And I felt like God reminded me of, uh, you know, that passage in 1 Corinthians where Paul is talking about the body of Christ. And he says, hey, here's the deal, you know, some of you guys are an ear, some are a nose, some are an eye, some are a whatever. You know, each, each is given a separate part, but it's, it's really all together that you have the whole. And, and I just had the sense that there's this beautiful exchange that's going to happen this week between, uh, you know, the, the community that I'm at and the, the network that we're a part of and then, you know, this community and network here. I feel like, you know, you guys are probably the eye, we might be the nostril or something like that. But there's, there's shared grace that I think is going to go back and forth. And, um, you know, uh, I'm going to be talking about identity, which has been a journey that God has been taking our uh, church through over this last five years. It's been immensely uh, transformative. But at the same time, coming here, I, like, I can feel some amazing things you guys have been stewarding. Um, there's, there's a quality of leadership here that is really, really solid. And uh, the, just the stewardship of the message in the ministry of the kingdom is really cool. Like, I can just feel it. And so I'm taking that back to the States, and uh, we're going we're gonna to pray that uh, some of the identity grace kind of lands on you guys. And so uh, to get started, can, can we just pray and come into agreement with that just real quick? I, I felt like that was how we were supposed to start today. And so, God, we just want to say, like, yes to your grace exchange program. Like, that's such a cool and exciting idea, and I love that we all get to be part of the same body, God, that you, you deposit things in, in different places, and we get to learn from each other and grow um, in, in connection and community. Lord, would you, would you do that? Would you exchange grace, God? Would you, would you do an impartation both ways, God, and, and continue to develop us into everything that you have for us? In your name, for your glory. Amen. Amen. So we're going to talk about identity this morning and uh, tomorrow morning, and I'm going to give you everything I possibly can in the span of, you know, 100-ish minutes altogether or whatever that is. There is no way that we can do anything but scratch the very surface of this, really. I mean, it, it would be like, you know, explain kingdom theology in two teachings. Well, okay, and give you a little bit, you know. Um, so I want you to know, we're going we're gonna to do everything we possibly can do, but there's no way we can do everything. And so, um, you know, after, after this, I want to encourage you, continue to review the talks. There's a, there's a book that I'd suggest if you want to keep digging into this. Most people that begin to encounter this are like, whoa, i got to process this. And so I wanted to resource 
um, you guys with a book that's, that's really, really good. I like this one a lot. It's my favorite book on identity. I won't tell you why. And um, it's called Live Like Jesus. We've arranged so that there's some over there if, you, if you're interested. Um, it's, a, it's a really, really good book. And I think this one is supposed to go to that gal in the yellow right there. You're about four rows back. Yeah. Would someone, someone take care of getting that to her there? Yeah. Enjoy. Enjoy. The Lord bless you with that. Okay. So let's, let's talk a bit about identity. Now, when it comes to identity, what we're talking about here is we're talking about our self-concept, our understanding of who we are. And it's important as we head into that to, to kind of lay a couple of ground rules that are very important. I think the first one is beautifully reflected in one of the songs that we sang this morning that has that line, I am who you say I am. And that's important to establish as the starting point for our journey when it comes to identity. What we are doing in this whole discussion is quite simply, we are trying to come to the place where we are in agreement with who God says that we are. Ultimately, God knows the truth in a way that none of us will ever know the truth. He sees it in fullness and clarity with complete accuracy. And one of the challenges for us as human beings is we have this tendency to think that we know ourselves so much better than we actually do. I mean, is there anyone here who hasn't learned something about themselves in the last year or two? I mean, we all, oh, I didn't know I liked that. I didn't know that was important to me. I didn't know this, that, or whatever. We're constantly learning about ourselves. And so what that means is when it comes to our own ability to see ourselves, it's at best limited and finite. It's at best somewhat accurate. We don't see the complete picture. We are not who we think we are but we are who God says we are. God sees truth. God knows who we really are. And what we're doing is we're allowing God to speak to us who we are. We're taking the posture of receiving. We're taking the posture of, okay, God, you know what? Part of that, honestly, doesn't even make sense to me right now. But you're God, so I'm pretty sure you're right. I'm pretty sure that whatever you think is true is truth. And what I found is the quicker I can get on board with that, the better. God and I haven't ever had one of these situations where we see it differently and he comes to my side. It doesn't work that way, right? <laughs> when we see differently, the quicker I can get to his side, the better. And so that's what we're going to begin to do. Now, one more note as we step into this, and that is this. I want to talk just ever so briefly about pride and humility and make sure we're understanding that carefully. There's a couple of different ways to think about pride and humility. And one of them is this, that, that you know, like if I was going to kind of draw a scale of uh, how well you think of yourself or something like that, that, you know, up until some point you're in humility and then you cross some line and if you think uh, kind of better of yourself than whatever that line is, that that's pride. Now, I, I grew up in the church and that was very much the sense that was communicated to me. And, and I understand the thinking there. The, the, the thinking is important, and it is, I, like, I don't want to, like, get too caught on my own perception of myself and so forth. And, and that's good. That's really good. That's really brilliant. But we have to be careful if that's the way that we frame that, because what it can do is it can violate our relationship with God in a way that is creator to created. Let me give you an example here, okay? 
Now, this was not uh, pre-prepared, so we'll see how this goes. Those crazy Americans like to fly by the seat of our pants. Um, but, but John, I'm actually going to ask you to come on up here and help me with a brief illustration here, okay? By the way, I haven't told you this, but I am taking fashion notes from you. <laughs> Quite impressed. Okay, so John, as probably most of you know, I would imagine a large number, in uh, a previous you know, station in life was a jeweler, right? And John, I think you have something on you that you've made, is that correct? Can, can, can you maybe take that ring off and hand that to me here, okay? So we have here an instance of the creator and the created, right? And the way that we relate to the created is not independent of the way we relate to the creator. So for example, let's say, let's say this, this is my approach. I don't want to confuse the ring with John. I want John to think he's great. And so the way that I convey that is I try to convey the difference between these two. It's not actually going to work well, right? So I'm going to be like, oh, John, yeah, this is mm, kind of disappointing. It's not really very good. I mean, you are awesome. I love you. But this, eh, you know, I don't know. I've, I've seen better. <laughs> like, how does that make you feel? Not great, right? Because, because here's the thing, right? The, the, he put himself into this ring. And so I can't relate to the ring and not say something about John in the process. If I want to lift John up, you know what's a much better way to, to respond? A much better way to respond is to say, oh my goodness, you made this? This is unbelievable. I, can't, I cannot believe the quality that went into that. In fact, if I want to really lift him up, here's what I might say. You know what? I see you in that ring. That's incredible, right? Now, what's happening here? John is not confused. He doesn't think he's the ring. <laughs> and the ring doesn't think he's John. Right? But the way that John is glorified as the creator is not by diminishing the creation. You see? Thank you. Thank you, thank you. <clears throat> the essence of pride and humility is not like the scale of how well you think of yourself. The essence of pride and humility is who's defining yourself. Pride is ultimately about this, I provide my self-definition. Whether it's too high or it's too low, I'm providing who I am. And humility is ultimately submission when it comes to our self-definition. It's realizing, God, you're the creator, I'm the created. I don't self-define. You define me, and so I'm gonna submit to whatever your definition of me is. That's really the true essence of humility. That's really what, what keeps us uh, kind of grounded as we move forward in this. And so as we're talking about our identity, we have to realize we're talking about God providing an identity to us. And when, when we realize that, the number one question then that prompts is, well, who does God say that I am? Right? Because if I can see myself the way he sees me, that's the safest place for my self-concept to be. And until that happens, by the way, just parenthetically, um, you know, until that happens, a couple of things are, are going to be off. First of all, just kind of kick back to everything that Debbie said last night. Frame this beautifully. Our culture is hurting for identity, needs identity. And if, if, if you don't believe me, like I'm, I think by some definitions, a very old millennial. I know our age group. 
If you're not in our age group, you probably can't imagine the chaos that's happening in people's identities right now. We need this in our culture. This is not optional. It is not optional right now. So it's the gospel message is going to fit our culture, but it's also, it's also going to empower us to do this kingdom ministry. Because here's what I've seen over and over and over and over and over and over and over again. Kingdom ministry puts you in this like dreadfully risky, uncomfortable place. You have to kind of like step out, not really knowing how things are going to happen and trust that God's going to show up and do something amazing. It's wired into it because God loves faith. The thing is built on faith. It is incredibly hard to do that if you're wrestling with personal insecurities internally. It's incredibly hard to be like, I'm going to step out and maybe put myself in a situation where you're going to think less of me if I'm not secure in who I am. But, but at the end of the day, when God informs our identity, if we can be like, you know what, I'm going to take this risk, and if it falls totally flat on its face, it doesn't really matter because your opinion of me doesn't shape me. Like, ultimately, like, my opinion of me is shaped by God, so it doesn't really matter whether you like me or not, whether this goes well or not. I'm okay either way because God has settled that question in my life. And so what happens is as this gets established in our life, we're empowered to do this kingdom ministry in a sustainable way, in a way that's just kind of like the overflow of our life. Because it's like, yeah, why not take a risk? The Holy Spirit might be doing something. This is going to be awesome. And we're good. So identity. Who does God say that we are? To start with that, we're going to go back to the very, very beginning. And I think there's a good chance that uh, I got my scriptures in too late, so uh, you're just going to have to read with me, swipe with me, turn pages with me, however you're going to get there, we can do it together. Um, and we're going to start in the very first chapter of the Bible, Genesis 1. Genesis 1, as, as you guys know, is the creation narrative, right? We've got God, and he's speaking things into being, let there be light, and you know, and let there be animals and dividing the oceans and the heavens and seas, stars, all of the beautiful stuff. And then he comes to day six and he creates the crown jewel of his creation, humanity. And here's what I find is so fascinating. In the creation of humanity, God breaks the pattern he set up until that point. Up until that point, everything that God is doing in creation happens through declaration. Let there be light and light shows up, right? Let the, let the seas and the waters, or the seas and the land split, and it happens. He's speaking it all into being. But you know what he doesn't say? Let there be Adam and Eve. He doesn't do that. He breaks the pattern, and he does that because he wants us to pay attention to the way that we were created. He does actually speak something into being, but what he speaks into being is an identity and a destiny over humanity. And then he gets down in the dirt and forms us with his own hands. Personal, relational, so beautiful. But before he does that, we see this declaration, which comes out of Genesis 1.26. And this is the creator stating the purpose of the creation. This is God saying, this is what it means to be a human being. And so Genesis 1.26 says this, and then God said, let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, over the livestock, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. We see here two things, an identity and a destiny. 
a being, what it means to be a human being, to carry the image and likeness of God, and then a destiny, a stated purpose, which is to have dominion over all the things on the earth under God. This is the identity, this is the destiny of humanity as God has defined it. Now, we're gonna follow the first one of those, but if you follow the trail of the second one of those through the scriptures, you know where that lands you when you come to the New Testament? The kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is Jesus bringing all the way back to the garden, saying, you know what's happening? Rule and reign through humanity in partnership with God again. And so this is like tried, true, classic, awesome vineyard stuff. It's fantastic, right? So, so that's, the, that's the destiny piece. We don't have time to go there now. What we're going to do is we're going to trace that identity piece through the story of the scriptures. And so the first thing we see is we see, okay, created with the image and likeness of God. Now, this is a question that, that has, you know, brought up just tons of debate and, and study and all of that. Like, what is it in us that, that gives us the image of God? And people ask all kinds of different uh, questions and sort of pose it all kinds of different ways. You know, maybe it's our appendix, you know, that's why no one can figure out what it does or, you know, whatever it is, right? Here's what I want to do. I want to suggest we keep it really simple and we just think about what an image is. And so I, I have an example of an image here that I think you guys are probably familiar with. Let me, let me find it. I stashed it in my Bible. Ah, there it is. You guys have probably seen this before. Maybe we can get a close uh, camera on that. You guys familiar with this image, right? 10 pound notes, right? And who's that right there? The queen. Ha! This is not the queen. This is ink on paper. The queen is nowhere near here, as far as I understand. What this is, is this is an image of the queen. But you see, even right there, we begin to see that for us as human beings, the line between an image and what it points to is very subtle. It's very subtle. Images create the ability to recognize what they point to. Now, my guess would be some of you in this room have seen the queen. In, in the US, we don't get to see our uh, heads of state as much, and uh, I'm just not gonna comment on that. Um, <laughs> some of you guys actually get to, get to see the queen. Now, this was the queen a little while back, so maybe you didn't see the queen at this time, but I would guess that if this queen walked through the back door of this room right now, there's not a one person in here that wouldn't recognize her, even though many of you never saw her like this. Never once in your life. Why? Because you're familiar with her image. And the image creates the ability to recognize what it points to, even if you don't know the real thing. So what does it mean to be a human being according to God's design? It means having the capability, having the capacity to image him, to be able to have the rest of the world look at us and say, you know what? This thing just marched through the door into my life. I don't know what that is, but I recognize him because I've seen him in you. There's an awareness of who God is because you're his imager. That's what it means to be a human being according to God. And, and, and let's just camp on this. Let's just think about this a little bit more and, and kind of push this further. I don't want to rush with this because what this is, is this is providing a sacred definition for our humanity that is, that is unbelievable as we continue to, to pull on it, as we continue to explore it. 
Let me read for you uh, what I find to be a shocking verse out of the New Testament. It's a very short one. Uh, You don't have to flip there with me. But Colossians 2, verse 9, uh, says this. It's talking of Jesus. It says, For in him, in Jesus Christ, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. The whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. What that means is, is that in Jesus Christ, as a human being dwelling bodily, everything of God was crammed into a human vessel. Now, that's that's staggering if you think about it. Like, God doesn't fit in this room. God does not fit in this town or this country or this globe or in the entire universe. And yet he fit in a person, Jesus Christ. See, to be a human being is to be a uniquely made container that has the capacity to reveal God unlike anything else. Let me, let me give you a, a silly analogy, but it's the best one that I can think of, so just kind of follow me through this. Let's suppose that you have like a dog that you just love, man's best friend and all that. Like, man, this dog is amazing. And you have such a great relationship with your dog that you're like, you know what? I want to be better friends with my dog. So I'm going to do whatever I can to connect with this dog. Now, let's hypothesize that someday medical science advances to the point where they can take our consciousness and put it in a a dog. It's like kind of a dog mental transplant or something. And so you think, I I told you the analogy is silly, but follow me through. It'll get get to a good place. (laughs) You think... If I become a dog, my dog and I can be dog best friends. This is going to be fantastic. I'm totally going to do it. And so you sign up for the surgery or whatever it is, and you, you, go, you go through the process, and when you wake up the other side, you know what you discover? There's a whole lot of you that can't fit in a dog. You've lost the ability to rationally think, analyze, and plan. You've lost the ability to dream about the future. You've lost the ability to communicate and articulate in the way that we can as humans that dogs cannot. You've lost all kinds of different elements of your humanity because they do not fit in a dog container. The dog doesn't have the capacity to reveal a human being. And yet, when God steps into a human, he leaves nothing behind. The whole fullness of deity dwells bodily in Jesus Christ. You see, we are kind of like a divinely shaped glove that God fills. There's nothing, there's no kind of extra fingers that, that, are, that are missing. God has the ability to fill our humanity and reveal himself through us in fullness. Many of us have, for whatever reason, the the traumas and tragedies of life and so forth, have come to a place where we're in a sense of disagreement with some part of our humanity. I wish I wasn't so emotional. I wish I wasn't so mental. (laughs) You know? I wish I I wasn't so relational. I wish I wasn't so this or so that or or whatever it is. And and we can take these components of ourselves and kind of disagree with them internally. And when we do that, we're attempting to chop off one of the fingers on the glove. We're saying, I don't like my emotions. Here's the point of your emotions. God has emotions too. And God wants to express his emotions 
through yours. Ultimately, our humanity is not about us. We're imagers. And so your emotions, your thoughts, your feelings, your relationships, your finances, go through any area of your life. You know why we have those things? Because it's a vehicle for God to express himself and image himself to the world. The entirety of our life is designed to uniquely do that. What would it be like to discover God in your thoughts? What would it be like to discover God in your emotions, in fellowship, in finances? I'll leave you with that. We can keep, we can keep moving. So we are designed as this glorious, beautiful, sacred thing. We have the capability to image God. Unbelievable, unbelievable. But we know the story, of course, doesn't end in the Garden of Eden, right? I mean, that's, that's just the start. And then it gets a lot more complicated, like two chapters later. <laughs> and so the next question we have to ask ourselves is this. What happens to our identity? What happens to our being, our humanity, when it comes to the fall? And we know the fall is kind of a, a complicated, multidimensional thing that happens. On, on one layer, you know, we know sin enters the story and there's... Uh, like relational breakdown and, and the relationship between God and man begins to suffer. And that's, that's kind of a whole uh, arc of the story of the scriptures. On another side, we have the, the, the message of, of the kingdom, which is that at the fall, uh, Satan swipes that delegated authority that was given to Adam and Eve and takes it for himself, which is why Jesus later calls him things like the ruler of this world. We're going to cast him out and we're going to get all authority on heaven and earth back to me. And so there's a kind of a whole nother arc that happens uh, as a result of the fall. When it comes to our humanity, there's a third arc that happens in the scriptures. And that third arc is connected to what does it mean to be human? And sin not only enters relationship and breaks relationship down, there's not only the breakdown of, of the authority that God had created, but there's a breakdown of what it means to be an imager in a human being itself. See, at the fall, it wasn't just that Adam and Eve did sin. It was that sin became a part of them. Sin sort of crawled over the wall into humanity, and they didn't just do sin. They became sinners, it became a part of who they are. I guess you are what you eat, in some sense, <laughs> was an action even back then. And so Adam and Eve now have this, this capability to image that they were created with, but there's a second problem. Sin is now living inside of them as well. And sin is also imaging itself through them. So now this crown jewel that was created to be able to, to reveal who God is, if you read the rest of the Old Testament, it's, it's pretty interrupted. We'll put it that way. For about 15 minutes at a time, they can give a pretty decent picture of God, and then they're worshiping something else. You know? It's over and over and over again. What we see is the imaging of not just God, but of sin, and a whole lot of imaging of sin. In that, their humanity has been broken. Their humanity has been twisted. And this is, by the way, <clears throat> the way that the scriptures use the term sinner. Now, in the English language... We, we often kind of take uh, something someone does and make a vocation out of it by adding an er to it, you know, construction worker. What we mean is someone who does construction work, right? 
Often when we think of sinner, we think someone who does sin. But the scriptures actually use the term sinner more like an identity. This is why, for example, Paul says things like, you know, when Adam and Eve sinned, the whole race became sinners. That doesn't mean the whole race did sin. That doesn't make any sense. You and I weren't born yet. How is that even possible? What it means is Adam and Eve took on sin as part of their identity, and that passed all the way down through the historical line to you and me. We were born in the same fallen state that they were. And so the term sinner is actually a being word. And what that means is the scriptures reveal that we not only have a doing problem, we mess up, we make mistakes, we do bad things, but we also have a being problem. Now, what is a being problem? This is the best analogy I can think of. You guys can, can see I'm fond of analogies. <clears throat> um, suppose one day that you're you know, brushing your teeth as you're preparing for work or whatever it is, and as you go through the morning, you know, you're, you're kind of rushed, you're not paying a lot of attention, and oops, the toothbrush falls out of your hand and into the toilet. You know what that toothbrush now has? A being problem. <laughs> because here's the thing, a toothbrush is meant to never go in the toilet. And as soon as a toothbrush goes into a toilet, its being has been violated and there's no way to fix it. You can, you can boil that thing in water all you want. That thing is not going back in your mouth. It doesn't matter how much you know it's clean. Its being has been violated. And so the only solution to the problem is chuck it in the trash can and get out a new one, right? That's how you fix a being problem. So when it comes to our being problem, we're in, we're in a sense toothbrushes that have fallen into the toilet of sin. It's tainted us. It's twisted and fractured our very humanity. We are not what God created us to be when we're born. We're not. And each of us, just kind of parenthetically, to step back into the culture thing right now, culture is supremely aware of this right now. Out there, they feel that. They do not feel, I'm guilty because of what I did. That's not resonating anymore because there is no right or wrong according to the narrative out there. But what there is according to the narrative out there is I'm broken and I don't know how to be fixed. Something, something's wrong with me. I need, I need something to fix my being problem. So there's a lot of resonance with this idea. Now, we go through the Old Testament and Jesus shows up. And when Jesus shows up, yay, finally. <laughs> you know, you kind of get to that point when you finish reading Malachi, you turn the page, you're like, thank you, Jesus, you're here. <laughs> so, <laughs> so Jesus shows up. And here's the thing about Jesus. We're going to get to his death and resurrection and all that in just a minute. But, but, but in his life, Jesus reveals the original design. When he says things like this, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father... What he's actually saying is, I'm playing the imaging role that humanity was meant to. In other words, Jesus is not only like the picture of God's standard, in a sense, he's the picture of humanity as it was meant to be. He is the new Adam, as Paul puts it. He is the, the completion, the fullness of our humanity. I'll put it this way. This is, a, this is a fun way. Jesus is 100% God, 100% man, right? The incarnation, a beautiful mystery. I love that. I love the incarnation. We can go off on that, but rabbit trails, don't go there. 
100% God, 100% man. If Jesus says then, I am the truth, which he does, you know what that means? He's 100% of the truth about God, and he's 100% of the truth about man as God designed. Jesus is everything you need to know about God, and he's actually everything we need to know about humanity. He shows us what it looks like to image God, the visible image of the invisible God, as Paul writes in Colossians 1.15. Jesus shows us what humanity really looks like. But he not only kind of reveals the original plan, brings us back, as it were, to, to the design of the Garden of Eden, he solves the problem. He doesn't just point out the problem, right? He doesn't just reveal the problem. He deals with the problem. And that's what his death and, and his resurrection and, and his ascension are about, is dealing with the problem and passing along the good news to us. And so how does that work? What does it look like to have Jesus deal with our being problem? Well, let's look at Romans 6 real quick. I love me some Romans. It's like that book that you know Peter was referring to in 2 Peter, where he's like, Paul writes some things that are confusing, but they're good. <laughs> no, I'm talking about? Maybe it's just me that thinks that. All right, so Romans 6. We're going we're gonna to read a little passage here. We're going to start in verse 5. Paul is describing, here's how you're saved. Here's what that looks like. As we read, I want to preface and go in with this. Notice that Paul is not saying you're saved because Jesus died in your place. Now, I am not saying that narrative is in Scripture in other places. I'm not trying to negate that narrative. What I'm trying to say is that's not the only narrative. And this narrative here is about our identity. And so let's read it. Let's look at it. Romans 6, verse 5. For if we have been united with him, that him is Jesus, in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Wait, united with him in death and resurrection? Okay, let's keep moving. <laughs> we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. So Jesus, when he hangs on the cross, he does do it in our place and deal with the relational stuff between us and God. But he also hangs on the cross with us joined to him and dies as our broken humanity. Let me just read that one more time. We know that our old self was crucified with him. Look at him, see him on the cross. You know what you see? Yourself on the cross. Crucified in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin, so that the sinner in us would be killed. You know what he's doing? Throwing the toothbrush in the toilet. Er, sorry, not in the toilet, in the trash throwing a toothbrush in the trash. Jesus doesn't come and look at our broken humanity and say, hmm, that's a problem, I'm gonna fix it. That's not what he does. He goes, man, you're in a bad way. I'm gonna kill you. <laughs> that's what he does. I'm gonna kill you and I'm gonna start over. That's how you fix a being problem, right? You were, <clears throat> we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For the one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we'll also live with him. 
So, so you're joined with him, not just in death, but also in resurrection, is what he's saying. Also, when new life fills him and he walks out of the grave different than he came, you were joined with him in that too. You know what we typically call that? Being born again. You walk out of that grave. I love that song. I think we sang it last night. I don't, I don't think we sang it this morning. But, you know, I ran out of that grave. I did. I was in the grave. There was an old me that was broken, that was messed up. There was a deviation of who I was supposed to be. And that me died with Jesus on the cross. That me got buried with Jesus in the tomb. And then you know what? On the third day, his spirit filled me with new life. I was born again, and I ran out of that grave. And you know what I am now? A new creation. The old has gone. The new has come. I love the gospel. I love the gospel. We know that if we've died with Christ, we believe we'll also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again, right? It was a one-time deal. It's not gonna happen again, right? Death no longer has dominion over him. He beat death, like there's no discussion, okay? For the death he died, he died to sin once and for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. What's Paul saying? He's saying, look, Jesus dealt with sin. He's not thinking about it anymore, right? His focus is now on the Father because sin is a settled issue for Jesus. Like, we're good. I died, check, done. Now we're focused on the Father, right? Now here's the part that challenges us. This is the first command that Paul gives believers in the entire book of Romans. Here's your first instruction out of this glorious book. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. It's amazing. He's like, guys, here's the first thing you got to realize. As much as Jesus died to sin, you died to sin that much. As much as Jesus has resurrected and moved past sin and is now focused on God, you need to see yourself that same way. That's the first instruction that I'm going to give you guys in this really long book. The first thing. And you know what that does? That confronts us because here's, here's, what I've, here's what I've seen. This is what I grew up in. This was my reality growing up is that exegeting the scriptures and looking at our experience, it's really easy to say, well, you know, I'm kind of dead to sin. I'm sort of mostly dead to it. I'm not really dead to sin. I'm not really free. So what, what I should actually expect is this kind of tug of war between the part of me that's still sinful and the part of me that's been redeemed. I'm going to live the rest of my life in this battle back and forth. Now, there's a really important question in there, which is the subject of our talk tomorrow. If we're really dead to sin, why do we still do it? That is an awesome question and such a good one that we're going to take a whole other session tomorrow to look at it. Okay? I don't want to rush through that. But at the same time, here's what we also have to realize. However we resolve that question, it's not fair to undo what Paul says here. It's not fair to say, well, I don't understand why I still sin, so I must not actually be dead to it. That is not a great way to handle scripture. If Paul says you're dead to sin, you're dead to sin. And here's the, here's the reason why there's no way you can squirm around that. I have heard all the reasons, and here's where every single one of them falls apart. 
If you say that you are not fully dead to sin, then you're saying Jesus did not fully die. And we got nothing if Jesus didn't die. We've got nothing. We do not have forgiveness. We do not have the kingdom of God and overthrowing Satan. We do not have a new creation. We have nothing. It all hangs on the death and the resurrection of Jesus. That's the linchpin of human history. And if we believe that Jesus died and resurrected, point of fact, then we have to believe we did too, a.k.a. we are no longer sinners. We are free. You know what the biblical term for that is? It's unfortunately one that the church has jumbled up for a long, long time. Righteous. The word righteous, if you look it up, you'll probably have heard right standing before God. I won't go into why that's that. It's not what the word means. You know what the word means? Right in being. Go look it up. Right in being. A toothbrush that has not fallen in the toilet. A humanity that has not been compromised. And so when, when we see Jesus, uh, Romans, or not Romans, 2 Corinthians 5.21, he made him who knew no sin. Jesus never messed up. He never made a mistake. But he made him to become sin. He put our sin in him and nailed our sin up on the cross so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. It's a being swap that's happening. Jesus says, I'm, I'm going to become everything that's broken, everything that's wrong, and I'm going to die on the cross as the broken you, so that you can become the whole me. That's what Jesus does for us. And you know what that means? It means there's an awful lot of lies in our head that we need to begin to let go. I'm a loser. I'm a failure. I'm a disappointment. I'm a dot, 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 where you mean something about brokenness because that's what sin is all about. If you're saying any of those things over yourself, then you're saying, I'm still who I was before the cross. God says that's not who you are anymore. Now, you're free to disagree with God if you want, but you're out of the game before it even starts. Or... You can say, you know what, God, I don't understand how I'm not a failure, but I am not going to say you're wrong. I'm not going to say you're wrong. I'm not going to say the cross failed. I'm not going to say that it was enough. We have this crazy thing where we think somehow our death completes something that Jesus's did not. That's a poor line of thinking. That doesn't make any sense. Now, we're still in some process, and we'll talk about that process tomorrow. That's the point of tomorrow. But we cannot invalidate the fact that our being problem was dealt with on the cross. You are a new creation, full stop. That's the point. And so here's what I want to do. We've got just a couple of more minutes here. There's, I think, a lot of people in this room right now that your heart is burning with something. There's like a resonance around this. I want to take the last three minutes and pray. So if that's you, just stand up where you're at. We don't have time to come or whatever, but stand up where you're at. I know there's more than two. <laughs> you know what's happening right now? The spirit of truth is etching truth on your heart. It's awesome. There's an, there's an atmosphere of revelation in this room right now. Because there's something the Lord has given me to steward here so I can open it up. And if you say yes, it'll land in your heart. Keep going. I know there's more. It might be something you're aware of. You're like, oh, I want that. It might be something you're like, I don't know what's happening inside. Here's one of the common ways. You feel like, ugh, 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 something's been hitting me this whole talk. 
Yeah, I'll, I'll wait. A couple of more, a couple of more. All right. Now, if you're not standing, would you either get your hands on someone or stretch your hands towards someone who say, who is? You know how we are. We're vineyard folk. Everybody gets to play. And just put your hands out, you know, kind of do the, the vineyard thing. Put your hands out, close your eyes. Father, I thank you for the truth that you're etching, Lord, on these hearts right now. I thank you, God, that you have made us new, and that's the reality we can begin to live from. Right now, Jesus, I'm asking, would you stand up inside of them in a new way? Yep, there it is. Stand up inside of them in a new way. He's actually in there. You know what? In fact, there's more of him in there than you. You're dead. He's alive in you. Jesus, stand up in there. Would you reveal yourself in them right now? In Jesus' name right now, I break off every false identity, every lie, every stuff the world has, has labeled us with. This is who you are. This is who you are. This is who you are. From parents, from school teachers, from siblings, from friends, even from pastors, God. Every source that has defined us, God. Right now, we just like repent and we say, God, we're sorry we picked that up. We're sorry we listened to them. We want to listen only to you. You're the one who knows who we really are. And so we break the power of those lies in Jesus' name, and we ask, Spirit of truth, form us in truth. Spirit of truth, form us in truth. And God, right now, I'm just asking, through these people, maybe first, would you begin to take this message, God, and impart it here in the UK? Lord, not just a personal freedom, but a corporate impartation, God, where this becomes a part of the formula here. This just becomes part of what we're about. We're standing on God's truth of who we are, and that's what empowers us to do this kingdom stuff. I release that, Lord, into this room. I release that, Lord, into these people in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Amen.